as I've been thinking about this is your life, I, I've just been reminded of what Peter is talking about. Because he, he talks about being a strangers in a strange, us being strangers in a strange land. That by our relationship with Christ, by following the word of God, we're going to look different than the world around us. And he reminds his people that the days are short. And the scripture says that. And we don't know when that's going to be. Uh, we don't know when the end of time is coming. But we do know that we are only given this moment. We're not given tomorrow. And we know that God could come at any time. And we want to be found faithful. And as I, as I think of that, I, I, I reminded of the words of this song, and I want to call these up uh, for you so you can see them as we, we look at this is your life. Uh, it says, yesterday is a wrinkle on your forehead. The idea is, is that you're getting older. Some of you are getting older faster than you want to be, all right? And not only that, but yesterday is a kid in the corner, understanding that our children grow really fast, do they not? How many of your parents, you remember seeing your kids and you're looking around and you go, where'd the last decade go? They've just grown up so fast. And then you think, yesterday is dead and over. It's gone. It's past. He goes on, don't close your eyes, don't close your eyes. This is your life, and today is all you've got now. The idea is if you try to stop it, it's just going to keep on going, and it's going to pass you by. And you've got to take hold of today. This is what we have left. He goes on, this is your life. Are you who do you want to be? Because he's understanding that, you know what, time is passing us by, but are you really becoming who God wants you to be? I mean, many of us keep thinking that life is something that's going to happen later, but it's happening right now. And God wants you to be what he wants you to be and try to have that happen now, not later, not someday in the future that we're going to get our life cleaned up and our act together, but right now. That's what God wants. He wants us to be, to be emissaries of his grace, to be recipients of his salvation. And some, many of us in this room think that we have to come to God clean before he'll save us. And that's not what the scripture says, that we come dirty. It's like saying that I need to step in the shower, I mean, or get, take a bath before I take a shower. No, that's not what happens. We come to God dirty and broken, asking God to mold us as we submit to his word, and then we do what he desires us to do, and then he will make us our life into what he wants it to be. That's why they, he goes on. He says, this is your life, but is it everything you dreamed that it would be when the world was younger and you had everything to lose? And, and so when we were younger, we have this idealistic understanding of what life's going to hold, and then something hits. It's called reality. Reality comes at us circumstances of life shift it really quick and the next thing you know we're in the middle of life and we're 10 years down the road going what happened where did all my dreams go what happened to them see many of us have tried to live our life the way that we want to live it not the way God wants to live it the way that God wants us to live it is to is something totally different than that which the world espounds that's what Peter's talking about today. Peter is showing, if you want to live the life, this is your new life in Christ. This is, this is how you can become who God wants you to be by living according to his word and organizing yourself according to this principles therein. That's what he invites us to today. And that's what we're going to look at. How can we live this new life the way that God wants us to be and that we can fulfill our purposes or the purpose that God has made us for? It's the old understanding of uh, the, the, the phrase from Eric Little. You guys remember Eric Little? Probably not. You've seen Chariots of Fire. It's about his life. And I've, I've shared this quote many times. But he uh, was famous for becoming a, a championship runner. And he said this, God made me fast. When I run, I feel his pleasure. The idea is, is that God made me for a purpose. And when I'm doing it, I feel the joy of God. See, God has made us all for a purpose. 
And that is to live according to his word in such a way to give his name glory. And when we do so, when we live this new life in Christ the way God desires us to live it, we will experience his joy and his blessing upon it. Now, it's not going to be easy. It's hard. Extremely hard. That's why the Bible says that the broad is the pathway to destruction and narrow is the road to eternal life and few find it. Because if we are to live this life, it means going against the flow of those around us. And it means that we are going to look like strangers in this world. We're going to look different. We're going to sound different. Our values are going to be different. Our relationships are going to be different. Our priorities and pursuits are going to be different. But God has promised to reward that. He's promised to reward that if we live this life that he has and desires us to have. But before we go any further, let's pause and ask for his blessing, invoke his spirit to speak to us through the preaching of his word today. Our Father and our God, we do come into your presence acknowledging that you alone are God, that you have given us your word and your word is truth, and we ask you to sanctify us today by your word. We know that it is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And Lord, we lay ourselves on the altar as living sacrifices, asking you by the power of your word to perform spiritual surgery on us, to remove the cancer of rebellion and unbelief that's in our hearts, that we might walk forth with you as healthy, God-glorifying patients and recipients and beneficiaries of the salvation that you purchased for us through the person of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's jump right into our text in 1 Peter chapter 4. We, Peter starts off by the Holy Spirit, and he says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. It, it literally is, is clothe yourself like in battle with the same thought process that God wants us to have, which means that we need to have a whole new perspective, a new approach to this new life than we had before. It has to be something totally different. And the idea is, is we have to adopt a new attitude. Adopt a new attitude. That's your first point. And I want you to write down, and you can follow along with your notes that were in your bulletin. We need to adopt a new attitude of how we live this life that God desires us to live. And we're going to see that this attitude involves several different things. Look at our text. He says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, what does that mean? It means that we are, to, we are suffering in the similar way that Christ suffered. Not that we go out and we willingly willing to tell people to beat us up. That's not what it's talking about there. The idea is, is we are taking up our cross daily, as Jesus instructed us to do, to understand that his dying on the cross was showing that he was done with sin. that he was Because he, he himself knew no sin, but became sin for us so that we in him might become the very righteousness of God. Which means then that we, by our faith in him, is shown that we are participating in his crucifixion. As Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The understanding that my faith in him, his crucifixion, became my crucifixion. And that we are suffering by taking up our cross and dying to sin. That's when Jesus said, if anyone wishes to follow me, let him take up his cross, deny himself. That's what it means, is dying to our old sinful desires. Now, James talks about that. James 
chapter 1 talks about our fallen desires. And we all in this room have sinful desires. Anyone who has Adam and Eve as a relative has sinful desires. Now, how that shows up in each one of us is different. And I've talked about this several different times, but I'm going to revisit it again. James chapter 1 says this, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, allow me to elaborate on this for a moment, because this is so important in our day and age, that each one of us has our own original sin. Okay? The book of uh, Psalms, talk about this in Psalm chapter, Psalm 51, where David says, in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, it's not the idea that the child was born of immorality. That's not what he's saying there. He's saying there that each one of us has inherited a sinful nature from our parents. Just as Adam and Eve, when they took of the fruit and fell, then they passed that sinful nature onto each one of us. It's like in your family, do you have this characteristic that passes on from generation to generation? So when the, the new baby is born, you're like, oh, look, he's got that nose. He's got that big toe. He's got your hairline. You know, and we, we have these little things that we look at in those children. Well, see, the idea is, is that the sinful nature is passed on from generation to generation in a similar way. So each one of us has a sinful nature, and that's how original, but the question is, is how does original sin show itself? Now, here's, here's where it comes from, okay? We, and it's, it's this entire argument that's been going on for so many years, the idea of nature versus nurture. Is it our nature or is it the environment we're nurtured in? And the idea is, and the scripture says, yes. Meaning that it's both. Now the question is, is how does our original sin show itself? Now let me ask you a, a question. You're, you know your personal sin that you struggle with more than any other. You know what it is. You have it in your mind right now. Now, undoubtedly, you've wondered why you struggle with that sin. But let me ask you a question. Why don't you struggle with other sins the same way? You ever ask yourself that? Like, for example, and I, I've shared this many different times, my wife and I were having a conversation about some sin in my own life several years ago, and then the conversation quickly drifted over to a friend of ours who was struggling with an eating disorder. And I couldn't understand, as a man, this eating disorder. I couldn't grasp it. And I, I said, it's just food. It, it's food. And my wife looked at me, and she said, well, this girl doesn't understand your sin. And then something clicked. I understood that how original sin shows itself in different people. For her, her sin was that eating disorder. She, it was a major struggle for her. For other people in this room, alcohol is your sin. You know, like I'm going to talk about my brother Brian. Brian has, has celebrated how many years of sobriety, Brian? Five years. Praise the Lord, brother. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Brian, Brian uh, he talked about he was a, he was a drug addict um, 30 years. 30, how many? 26 years. He was doing a lot of different drugs. He was into marijuana. He was into cocaine. He was into alcohol. And, and God helped deliver him from that. And he can't be around it because he recognizes that is where his sin comes out. Now, there are some of you in this room, you could have a beer. It didn't affect you ever. Ever. You don't have that in, in your life because that's not how your original sin comes out. Your original sin comes out in a different way. Now, see, we all have desires, but it's, it's that our desire jumps the, the rails in different ways. 
wants to find an exit where there is no exit. God's got the exits to determine, and it goes off the rail. And we've looked at it this way, and I've shared this many different times, but it's the understanding of, of uh, or, or let me illustrate for a moment. It's, a, it's an 18-wheeler, and you've been around a long time. I know you've heard this story so many different times, but just stay with me because it's very, very important. Imagine an 18-wheeler. On the back of that 18-wheeler is a trailer, and on that trailer are all these different cars. Okay? The driver of that 18-wheeler is told that he can drive wherever he wants to drive, but he can't go this one place that says, do not enter. Do not enter. Okay? Death ahead. So he drives all over, and he comes back, and he sees that barrier, and he thinks, there's something on the other side of that barrier that I want that's being kept from me. So he decides to just run through that barrier, rams through it, and not realizing that where the barrier was, was it, it, it covered it up, and it was a little bit of a rise, and then he goes off an end of a cliff, and he didn't know it. Now, on the back of that trailer were all these different cars, okay? Just like we see all the time going to a car dealership, we all see those cars stacked, right? And then all those cars spin out onto the ground. Some of them get the front smashed in, some get the windshields broken, doors, axles, they're all broken in different ways. See, the driver of that first truck was Adam. When Adam sinned, we were in Adam. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And we know that death came through Adam and sin spread to all men, meaning that each one of us then was wrecked in a different way. We were born with a dent, dispositions to sins. Now, we can get dents in life through circumstances that happen to us, but we are all born with a different dent, proclivities to certain things. So we are, in essence, born a certain way, but to act on those dents is disobedience and rebellion in the sight of God. Now, Christ came to help knock out the dent, to restore us and make us whole again. Now, we know that we're going to continue to struggle with those sins, but we have to fight it, and it's learning how to fight that sin in whatever way that you struggle. For some of you, it's drugs. You struggle with drugs big time. Some of you, it's porn. Some of you, it is, you're, you're, you're addicted to shopping. Others, it is food. That's your sin. For others, it is, you have, you have, uh, you have a desire to commit adultery. For those of you, you've got, you've got homosexual attractions. See, these are all things that we're born with. But to act on those is sin in the sight of God. This is why Paul talks about this. I want to show this to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5.17, he says that we are now new creatures in the sight of God. The old has passed away, but the new has come. Now, undoubtedly, many of us have to ask ourselves this question. If we are new in Christ, and I know many of us have experienced this, why do I still struggle with the same sins? Well, we've talked about this as well. It's just like getting a heart transplant. The heart is bad, gets a new heart, and what happens? That old flesh has a tendency to want to get rid of that new heart. That flesh is going to fight against that new heart. So we understand that though we are new creatures, we still haven't got rid of that complete sinful flesh. And this is another thing that Paul says to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, he says, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? In other words, those who indulge those dents are, are in rebellion to God and will not inherit the kingdom of God. God says very clearly, don't fool yourselves. Though indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheap people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. The idea is, is that if we give in to these, we're not going to inherit God's kingdom that he has given for us. 
that he died on the cross to give us freedom from. He took the penalty upon himself. He made the payment for our sins. But he also is he's free us from that power of sin. We don't have to do that any longer. And that's what Paul says. Some of you were once like that. You once this were this way. And then I love this part. You were made holy. God made you holy. God brought you to himself by putting his mercy upon you, by, by being crucified for you so that you, the chain of sin wouldn't be any longer to your soul. But you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. That's a pretty amazing picture. Now, we have to say, what does that mean for us? What does that mean? It means that we need to die to our sinful desires. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Let's look at this. For if you live according to the flesh, this fallen flesh, indulging these sinful desires that exhibit themselves in different ways in different people, then... But uh, um, then you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The idea is, is that if you are appropriating Christ's crucifixion as your own, and you are putting to death those sins, then you will live. Because you're, you're not doing it on your own, though. It's because the Spirit of God is working that life of Christ in you, and then that flows out of you. He goes on to say in Colossians chapter 3. Let's look at this one. He says, put to death, therefore. Kill it! Kill it. Don't indulge it. What is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Now, it's not saying that passion, you can't have passion about something. It's the understanding of fallen passion. The passion for sins. Not the passion for God. Evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, we've talked about idolatry. Idolatry is not just bowing down to a a statue or an image, is it? Is it? What is it? It's taking good things, making them preeminent things, or making them God things, and then they become a bad thing. Taking good things, see, here it's saying is sexual immorality and purity. Now, is sex a good thing or a bad thing? It's good in the context that God has designed it to be. Outside of that, and that's with any sin, then it's bad. That's bad. It's when it goes beyond what God intended it to be, when it goes off the tracks. That's where it becomes destructive. And it says that that's idolatry. In other words, we're making that bigger than God. God has to be supreme. And his word speaks to us on what and how we are to live our life. So if we're going to live the life that God wants us to do, then we have to put to death our sinful desires. That means taking up our cross daily and dying to those sinful desires that come in war against us. And we all know what they are. That seem natural to our flesh, but they are enmity and rebellion, treason in the sight of God. We make sure that, he goes, these two you once walked, not doing it any longer, when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Okay? Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and to put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. In other words, God is making you look like Jesus. He wants you to look like Jesus. And we do this by offering ourselves as living sacrifices, by laying ourselves, the word before us, and then laying ourselves before the word. And then literally, like I said, when I prayed, We lay ourselves on the table asking God to perform surgery with his word. 
to remove the cancer of unbelief and rebellion to him. Now, Peter understood that. He understood that. He says, we're put to death the sin of our old flesh, that old man, that old way of life. Looking at verse 4 with me. Look at 1 Peter 4.4. 4. says that our old friends from our sinful way of life are surprised that we don't join them any longer. Now, the Greek word literally means to run together. You ever have that? Your friends you run around with? Right? It's the idea of you're not running around with them anymore. But it's not saying that you don't have a relationship with them. It's that you're not pursuing and have the same goal that they have. They're surprised because this new life that you are experiencing is different. Now you're no longer the human passion, but for the, what's it say in the text? For the will of God, right? The understanding now, I've got a different pursuit. So if we're going to live this life that God wants us to live, it means dying to our sinful, fallen desires, but it also means chasing after his commands. Chasing after his commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Reading the word of God and then letting the word of God read us. Chasing after what the word of God says. Longing to apply it to our life. Thirsting for it. Yearning for it. Letting it speak to us. Having a desire for his word. Let me ask you right now. Do you have a desire for his word? Do you have a desire? I'm not saying you have to be a biblical scholar. That's not it. But do you have a desire for the word of God? Because I know that when I've seen the Spirit of God come into a person, that's the first thing they long for. They long to drink from the Word of God. They want to understand it. They want to hear it preached. They can't be satisfied unless they are satisfied unless they are drinking from it. Now, many of us, if we don't have that passion for the Word, we have to ask something: What's wrong? And it's not wrong, anything wrong with the Word. Let me tell you, something wrong with you. Now, I'm not saying that every verse is going to speak to you. I, you know, Leviticus isn't my most fun book to read. Numbers. But it's like go into the New Testament and read the words of Jesus and let those speak to you. I mean, the Old Testament is inspired as well, and God will speak to you through the narratives and the law and all of those different things. And we need to learn the Old Testament, especially because it sheds a great deal of light on the new. But we need to make sure that we're letting the words of God speak to us. Reading to understand. Not just running through it, but pausing and let them seep into the hard soil of our souls. You know, you ever, you ever seen a, a field that's really hard and crusty and becomes all broken? What's the only way to loosen it up? Saturate it. Saturate it. We saturate ourselves with the Word of God and chase after His commands. That's what he's saying. Is that we're not to be living for the passions of our old way of life, but we're to be chasing after His commands. We're running in a different direction now. Chasing after His commands. Now, Let's look at verse 3 with me. Look at verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality. Well, let's before we go on there. Gentiles. Now, what Peter's doing is using definite terminology uh, because he's, he, he, he's Jewish, and he understands that the, the people that are following God are part of the covenant community of God, and those that are outside of the covenant community of God are Gentiles. Okay, meaning that those are the people, are, are unbelievers. He's not using it in the classical sense that a Jew normally would, but he's appropriating it for his own usage to show that we are now part of the Israel of God, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 6. We're part of his covenant community now. And not only that, but we are, those who are outside that covenant community who are unbelievers are Gentiles, and we're not pursuing the same things that w- they were doing. But he goes on, he says, 
what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality. They're living in this, indulging it, finding excuses to do it. We're no longer living in it anymore. That is not the pursuit of our lives. We are different. So living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties. It's interesting there. It's the idea of being with a bunch of your buddies and they're walking down the street and they're all loud and they're, they're yelling as they're just drinking because they're completely drunk and causing a ruckus. And he's saying that's not what your life is any longer. That's not what your pursuit is to be. He says, in lawless idolatry, sums it all up right there. And then he goes on, with respect to this, they are surprised. The idea of surprised is literally like a birthday party when someone jumps out and goes, surprise! It's like they're surprised. Whoa, wait a minute, what, you're different? I don't like this. You, you want to talk about people not liking change? People really don't like it if you change to follow God. They don't like that. It's a surprise to them. Why, why don't they like it? Because it is a condemnation of their lifestyle choice. It is. Because you being different means that you're not doing what they're doing, or that what, you're not doing what they were doing now, that you're living a different life, you're going in a different direction, and that makes them stop and go, wait a minute, it's an act in some ways of judgment on their own life. It's a condemnation of what they're doing. And they don't like that, because they don't want anyone to tell them they're wrong. And he goes on to say, you are, are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Now, notice it says that the past, in verse 3, the past suffices. It means that it's more than sufficient, meaning that it's far too much. It means that you've done all your sinning. It was way too much. You need to stop now. You're going in a different direction. Don't keep doing it. You are to be done with that phase of your life. And it's interesting, in the Greek, the three perfect tenses emphasize that the thought that this past of theirs is a closed chapter, that part of the story is over and done with. It's completely done with. Now, I mentioned before that it means surprised. Now, they are astonished at what you're doing now. Now, here's what happens. If you are going to chase after his commands, if you're going to die to your sinful desires and chase after his commands, something's going to happen and you need to be ready for it. You are going to freak out your family and friends. That's the next point. Freaking out family and friends. You really are. You're going to freak them out. People are going to go, oh, no, are you a holy roller now? Oh, I remember when I became a follower of Jesus, and, I, and, and one of my classmates got so angry, because I was a pretty bad guy. And they said, you're going to be a Bible thumper, aren't you? And one of them got so mad, because I kept witnessing, and he's like, and I was in this singing, dancing group, and he's like, you, in the middle of class, he explodes on me. And he's just like, you, 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 you dancer? I'm like, okay, that's, okay. That's as good as you got. We're all, we're good. <laughs> you know? But it says literally that they're going to malign you for your new walk with Christ. So you're going to freak out your friends and family, and here's what you need to do. You need to prepare yourself. You need to be prepping for persecution. You need to prep for persecution. Because people are going to disagree. The world hated Jesus. And Jesus said that they're going to hate us as well if we are his followers. They're going to hate us. It's inevitable that those who seek to be godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. This is hard. This is not easy. But if you want your best life, then this is what it involves, the way that God wants. 
It means dying to our old desires, chasing after his commands. It means that we're going to be freaking out our friends and family. And that means we need to get ready and prep for persecution because it's coming. And they malign you. The word in Greek is blasphemos. It's the word blasphemy. It's the idea of Ill, um, bringing ill repute to your character. They will tear you down. And you know what our tendency is going to be? Not to want to be around them. Because we don't like to be around things that are hard when people disagree with us. So what is Peter saying there? That we don't have relation with these people any longer? Now, we're not headed in the same direction, but does that mean we cut it off entirely? Well, I think Peter wants us to understand that we need to be rethinking our association. He wants us to be rethinking our association. Because see, traditionally, for those that have grown up in church any period of time, the idea is when you got saved, suddenly you were at church like 24-7. Some of you grew up with that. And I even heard one a seminary president, he said, if you're not at church every day of the week, you're in sin. I was like, well, that is just stupid. I don't know how else to put it. Because how do you influence your friends and neighbors? How do you be a light in a dark place? How do you be salt? In order to be salt, you've got to get out of the salt shaker. You do. You do. So we need to be rethinking our, our associations, and Peter wants us to understand that we can't go into holy conclaves and let the smoke out of our convictions. That's not what we're to do. We're not to be monks in the desert. So it's not about isolation from sinful people. That's letter A there. Isolation from sinful people. Now, Paul talks a great deal about this because there is an idea where we do separate ourselves because if we do tolerate sin within our body, that will pollute the body. Peter, uh, Paul writes about this. He talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, he says this, and I want you to pay very close attention to what he writes here. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Okay? Many of us would be like, okay. But then he says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, meaning that there are people that are unbelievers, they're in sin. Why do you expect them to act like a saint? They're sinners. How are they going to be reached if you're not with them? But then he says this, very interesting, and this is, this is what the scripture says. He says, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters. He's talking about the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, greedy swindlers, idolaters, which we, by the way, we have a tendency to focus on one and not the others. Swindlers, idolaters, since the, then you would need to go out of the world, meaning that it's impossible to do. You have to be monks in, a, in your own little conclave itself. Hermits, Amish, that's not what he's saying. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. What he's saying there is that someone who claims to be a brother and is living in blatant disregard to God and his commands and says he's okay, don't associate with that one. Why? Because bad company corrupts good morals. See, he says, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. The idea there is that that person, because people always throw this in your face, judge not lest you be judged, right? He's saying here, do I judge those outside of the church? No. Why? Because they're already under the condemnation of God. They're already under judgment. They're under the very condemnation of God, and my responsibility is to bear a witness to them about who Jesus is, calling for them to repent in the hope that God would grant them the repentance that leads to life. 
That's what he's saying there. But he's saying for the person who is a believer that is willingly indulging in this type of sin with no regard to God and his word, remove them in love. Galatians 6.1 says, Come, if, if a brother is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore such a one gently, but be careful lest you yourself be tempted. And if they don't respond to that, Matthew 18 comes into play. Where we confront them, which is what Galatians 6.1 is talking about. Then we bring two or three to talk to them about their sin. This is a brother we're talking to. And then we bring it, the issue before the church. And if that doesn't happen, then they are removed from fellowship. That's why Peter or Paul says there, remove the evil person from among you. Why? Because toleration equals pollution spiritually and dulls the effect of God's spirit and his word. That's why we continually go back to the word of God, and that's why many different churches today have thrown out the Bible and sin reigns and their light darkens. And then unbelievers are going, oh, we love you. Why? Because they're not exposing the light of God on their sin. That's why. That's what Peter, or Paul here is talking about, and that's what Peter is saying. So he understands then that it's not referring to isolation from sinful people, but he's talking about participation in sinful practices. Don't be partaking in those sins. Now, here's, here's a little rule of thumb. We are to avoid all appearance of evil. Thessalonians says that. Paul writes that in Thessalonians. Now, if we find ourselves in a relationship with them where our own spiritual walk is being compromised, that's when we need to remove ourselves from fellowship. That might be how your dent comes out. And you've got to be very, very careful there. And allow God in his sovereignty to let someone else who doesn't struggle in that in instance to come in and speak the truth of God to them. Now, the goal through all of this is transformation by the Spirit's power. Transformation. We want to see someone to be transformed by the power of God. Is that not what we want to see? We want to see people become new creations, right? That's what we want. We want to see sick people saved, made well. But sick people can't hear about where the medicine is if we're too busy hanging out in our little bubble. This is where it gets hard, people. This is where it's difficult living in a sinful society. That we're to be around sinful people. When you get around sinful people, it's never, I mean, let me tell you, sin is messy. Sin is extremely messy. It's easy to cut ourselves off and have these rules of righteousness that we go by, that if you step over, you're in or you're out, and just keep those. But it's a lot harder to interact with sinful people because they're not running on the rails. But we're to keep calling them back to the path of life and hope that God grants them repentance. Let's look at this verse right here. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. This is, I know that, that's not, part's not underlined, but we all need to adhere to it. We're not known for our kindness. Patiently, or able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with hatred, with bring down the, you know, let's get ready to gospel, that kind of thing. Is that what we need to do? You know, it's like a throwdown, cage match, gospel style not what he's saying there he's saying correct your opponents with gentleness and gentleness literally means in greek strength under control or power under control gentle that god 
may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. See, many of them don't even know they're being captured. The scripture says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that, God ha- I mean, that Satan has successfully blinded the eyes of unbelievers to see the reality and the truth of the glory of God. And it's through the proclamation of the gospel that the veil is removed. That they could see the glory of Jesus Christ. And we're to continually lay forth the word of life that they might be transformed. Become more like Jesus. That's what Peter and Paul both want us to understand. That it's not about isolation from sinful people in the world, meaning unbelievers. But it's about our participation in sinful practices. We're not to be doing that. So that we can see by interacting with them that they might see or might be transformed by the Spirit's power. Transformed by the Spirit's power. Now, if we're going to do this, if we're going to, to do this life, if we're going to be going out to the people that have been shipwrecked by the storms of life, then we need to find an anchor in the midst of the storm. Finding an anchor in the midst of the storm. Because you know what? This isn't going to be easy. We need to be rooted. Now, how many of you, when you were kids, you had one of those pop-up punching bags? Remember those things? You'd air them up, bring them home, and it would last like 30 minutes. Because you were just, you know, doing your new Chuck Norris kung fu move, or, you know, and you're boom, boom, boom. They go boom, 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 boom. Boom, boom, boom. And it just make me mad. <laughs> and then you hit it again, hard as you could. Bam! And the thing go boom, 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 boom. Then I kick it. <laughs> and it boom, 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 boom. See, that's how we are Christians are supposed to be. That we have an anchor. No matter how much we get thrown around, can't be shaken. We have an anchor through the midst of the storm that no matter what life throws at us, that we have a foundation that can't be moved. We don't have to worry about what's going on in the world because the world's going to behave the way the world does. Our goal is to be light in the dark place having an anchor in the midst of the storm as we go out and try to reach those who are lost in sin. Now, if we're to have this anchor, then it involves three different things. First of all, it involves us having an overcoming Savior. Overcoming Savior. What did Jesus say in John chapter 16? I love that passage. John 16, Jesus says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. How many of you need peace? (laughs) He said this, he goes, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have what? Overcome the world. See, many of us rail and struggle with what's going on in the world because really we haven't come to the reality that Jesus has overcome. We look at the culture more than we do at Christ. We have to look at Christ over culture. We have an overcoming Savior that He is finished, and he He is going to bring everything to its conclusion. So we have an overcoming savior but he has not left us alone but he is giving us an overflowing spirit an overflowing spirit romans chapter 8 says this likewise the spirit helps us in our weaknesses or weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words that god hasn't left us by ourselves but he's given the spirit of god within us to help nourish us as we continually nourish that spirit through the reading of his word which is a spiritual drink which is spiritual food that it imparts growth to our souls, that we can understand then that we have this spirit that helps, it flows strongly and gives us power because it is not a power of fear, but it is a power of love 
power and self-control, as Peter said, or as, as Paul says to Timothy. So we have an overcoming Savior. That's how we can have an anchor in the midst of this sinful world that we are strangers in the midst of that Peter's talking about. That we have an overcoming Savior, an overflowing Spirit, and then we have an outcome that is secure. An outcome that is secure. The game is fixed. God already knows the final score. You know, you've got a lot of bookies right now that are going on. We have March Madness. this past, I mean, we have the championship game coming up this weekend, the NCAA tournament. The field of 64 has been reduced. And you've got people just betting all over the place on who's going to win and how much it's going to be. And I'm amazed. I've never understood gambling. It, it's not my dent. Some people, that's their dent. But they just will bet everything on something they're not sure how it's going to turn out. But yet, people, when they read the Word of God, don't bet on God, and that's a sure thing. It's a sure thing. It, odds are always in God's favor. No matter what going on, the, what's going on in the culture, it, the game is fixed. The score has already been determined. And we see that God comes out the winner. So we have to understand the outcome is secure. It's already been purchased. It is finished. It's not like if everything's going on in the world and Jesus going, well, why did they do that? That was unexpected. They came out with a full court press, and I was going with a totally different offense there. No, it's not like that. He knows. The outcome has been secured. Now, let's go back, and, and I want us to see this. If we jump into this, we're going to see that, it, it, we look within our text, we see that judgment is quickly approaching. Let's look at, look at our text. He says, but they, verse 5, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is where we have to stop and reflect. The idea of ready, it could happen at any time. He's ready. And the one that they're talking about there is Jesus. That God the Father has appointed Jesus to be the one by which he will judge the entire world. We see that in, in, in the Gospels. We see that in the book of Acts. We see the book of Revelation and Hebrews. That Jesus is the one who will dispense judgment to this world. The judgment is quickly approaching. Now, he's going to judge the living and the dead. The idea is you're not going to get away from it. Now, what are the two things you can't get away from traditionally in our culture? We say what? Death and what's this next week? Taxes. How many of I just? How many of how many of you did, did I just really freak out by reminding you that April fifteenth is approaching? <laughs> right? You can't you can't escape death and you can't escape taxes. Why? Because you could even be taxed after you die. There's a death tax. What's up with that? You know, I've just never got that in our culture, and you can't escape it. You know, even if you die, you can't get away from Jesus's judgment. that he's going to judge the living and the dead. Now, for many of us, that makes us giggle with delight. The wicked are going to be judged. We're like little kids. The problem is, though, that's a self-righteous attitude. Knowing that judgment's coming shouldn't make us go, but to plead, be reconciled to God. To plead, to them, that they might come to know Jesus Christ before it is too late. So the judgment that we see here that is going to happen should be a motivator to us. He says in verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. The idea is that they were preached and then they, they were preached to and then they died. And, and Peter is, is counteracting an accusation that would come to him and say, what's the benefit of being a believer? Unbelievers would look at him and go, believers are still going to die. And he's saying, yeah, but there's two deaths. 
Two deaths. There's the death that we all experience in this room. That's physical death. But then there's a second death that unbelievers will experience, which is eternal separation from God. That is the second death that Revelation talks about. So he's saying that I- even though they're dead, they still are alive in the sight of God. And they're either going under, will be undergoing punishment or pleasure. The blessing of God or just the, the bad, terrible, horrid, horribleness of hell. So he's saying that because of that, shouldn't cause us to, to delight with glee, but it should motivate us to do a few different things. First of all, it should motivate us to love strongly. To love strongly. Knowing that it's going to come should cause us to love those who are lost in such a way that they see Jesus in us. We need to love strongly. That's what God desires us to be doing. To love strongly. Love strongly. Now, many of us, we have a very weird understanding of love. Love strongly means caring enough to tell the truth. Many of us see our friends and family in sin, and they want their sin so much, and we think, oh, let's make it okay for them to sin, because that's what they want. You know, that's not love, that's hate. It's like this. Let me, last week, there was the Moose Heart uh, Easter egg extravaganza thing, whatever what you, guys, you guys call it. By the way, we needed to witness Gary Erweiler that day. Okay? Just tell me about it. I'll tell you about it later. It's pretty funny. It's pretty funny. But you see all these kids, and my kids were out there just running for candy, right? Running for candy. And they get home, and what do they want to do? Eat the candy. What is your job as a parent? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Why? Not good for you. See, it's the same way with sin. If we let person have all their sin, are we loving them? No. We're saying, no, it's going to hurt you. It's going to make you sick. And for us to say that we love them so we're going to let them continue in sin is not love. It's hate. By caring enough to say, don't do it. We're showing love. That's love. Love strongly. Love someone enough to tell them the truth of God and what he has done in his word for us. So love strongly. We are also to pray fervently. Pray fervently. Praying for those that they'll come to know Jesus, that God will grant them the repentance before it's too late. I mean, we have no idea how bad the judgment of God really is. Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian in the 18th century, he once wrote that he said that men will be spending time in hell begging God to have one sin removed from their sentence. That's how bad it will be. Just to have one sin removed. How infinitely awful it will be. And we're so flippant in our attitude. God is not flippant. In regards to sin, we can call it any name we want to, and that's what we do in our culture. I'm amazed at how we redefine things. Certain things that we're like, oh, it's not that bad. Satan, it's a deliberate tactic of Satan, by the way. Did you know that? Think about this. Gentleman's club. I'll tell you right now, there ain't no gentleman there. They should be pervert's corner. If they did that, no one's going to show up. See, Satan redefines it. Like, I was reading this article about this uh, school that had a very hard time for this, this woman who was a, oh, I like it, adult film actress. Oh, it's for adults. It's porn! And she was reading at a school for children. 
And this one woman wrote an article about it because there was all this controversy around it. And this woman wrote this article, and she herself was in the porn industry, and she's like, I'm not a bad person. I have morals. What? Oh, I just do this, but I take care of all this stuff and all this stuff. Okay, wait. That's like saying, you know, I'm not a bad person. I kill people. I rape women. It's not bad. I'm a good guy. I take care of my mom. What? I mean, seriously. Let's think about it. Satan is blind in the minds of unbelievers and causing us to think that these things are okay. Redefining the terms. And we have to understand and let God's word speak to our hearts and let the light of his word shine the unbelief on us and each one of us to show who he is. And that means that we need to open our eyes and we need to see his word and what it means. We need to love people strongly. We need to pray fervently with heat. I mean, many of us look at prayer as just another thing to do, and we don't realize it's a lifeline. It's a lifeline. We're to be praying fervently. We're also to be serving faithfully. I know many of us in this room, we're tired. We're tired. You know what the Bible says in Galatians 6, 9? Let me show this to you. Do you have Galatians 6, 9? Maybe not. Galatians 6, 9, I'll read it for you. The scripture says, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Don't give up. Don't worry about what's going on around you. You keep following Jesus. Don't worry about how other people are being blessed or the struggles that they're going through. You follow Jesus. That's why I love the interaction that Peter that has with Jesus after his resurrection. And Peter, Jesus is restoring Peter. And Peter, what's he do? Rather than, yes, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. He looks at John and goes, what about him? What about him? And he's like, don't worry about him. You do what I called you to do. I've got a mission for you. Don't worry about his mission. I've got a different purpose for him. You focus on me. You do what I've called you to do. Don't worry about the people that are going on around you. Don't worry about their disobedience. You follow me. So make sure that you serve faithfully. Are you serving? Are you using the gifts that you have? Are you being a part of the body? Or are many of you like spiritual appendixes that if we took you out, it's not going to matter? You know, it's your appendix. You can take that out. It doesn't affect you. There are so many people that come into church and just get fat, and yet they're not serving, and it can be removed from the body. It's not going to affect the body at all. Become such a servant of God that when you'd be taken away, it's going to hurt. Some of you are, like, in the body of Christ, you're like big-toed. You don't think you're all that important, but we can't get around without you. And if you get hurt, that hurts everybody. So we have to be serving faithfully serving faithfully we also need to be proclaiming boldly i should put intelligently behind that in parentheses proclaiming boldly that's when peter says right here for this is why the gospel was preached meaning that they heard the gospel because someone preached it to them preach the word boldly be bold in your proclamation some of some of us in this room are, are like mice not Mighty Mouse either. We're like spiritual mice, and God is calling us to be lions. Lions for him, boldly proclaiming the truth of who he is with our friends and our family and our neighbors and our classmates and our, classmates and our colleagues. We need to be proclaiming boldly. And last of all, knowing that judgment is coming, needs that understands that we should be giving sacrificially. Why? Why do I say that? Well, I say that because... because our money has a tendency to reveal where our heart is and where our priorities are. 
It does. It reveals it. I'm reminded of the story of this country preacher who was standing up in front of the church, and he said, if we got to go somewhere, then we got to walk. And the deacons of the church kind of like, yeah, preacher, we got to walk, Rev. Let's do it. And he says, well, if we're going to really be moving, then we got to run. And then the deacons started going, we got to run, preach. We got to run. And he said, if we really want to see God move, then we got to fly. And the whole church is going, we got to fly, Rev. We got to fly. And he goes, if we're going to fly, that's going to cost money. And then the deacon said, let us crawl. Let us crawl. Okay? See, understanding. He said, if we want to see God do something, I mean, we have to understand there's practical ramifications of that. It costs money. But also, it involves us showing the attitude of our heart by giving faithfully and giving sacrificially. Because we understand that we're acknowledging that we are stewards of all God has given to us. Deuteronomy 8.18 says that he has given us the ability to have and make wealth. The ability that you have, you didn't give yourself. You didn't give yourself the brain that you had. God gave it to you. And he expects you to use it. And use the job that you do to earn money, to live off, and then give back to him what is already his. To give sacrificially. So if you really want to live the life that God wants you to live, this is your new life. It requires us doing all of these things soon. It means doing it now, not waiting another day, because we understand that Jesus is ready to judge the living and the dead, and that should motivate us to reach out to them, to give the entirety of our life to go in that direction with God, not running in the same passions, but not removing our fellowship with Him either, but to say, be reconciled to God. Because judgment's coming, and it's not something you want to go through. Please, praying fervently, giving sacrificially, proclaiming the truth of God boldly and loving Him strongly. That's what God wants us to do. Can we do it? Yeah. But not by ourselves. Not without the power of God giving us that ability to do it. Not without submitting to the reality of His Word. It requires us all doing it. And when we do, He will receive glory. And you know what we will receive? Joy. Joy of doing what God has made us to do. That's where joy is found. It's not in all the parties. It's not in the pursuit of all the pleasures. It's found in the person of God by delighting ourselves in him, and he will give us the desires of our heart, which is himself. As Augustine, the theologian, said, our heart is restless until it finds its rest in me. We have to find our rest in him, knowing that in him, by doing what he wants to do, can we find and live this life that God desires us to have. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's pray. Father, we are reminded that you are good, that you are God, that you have given us the power of your word and not left us as orphans, but given us your spirit to show that our adoption as children of God is real, that we have been made and created as new creatures, and you are constantly... Uh, transforming us to look like the image of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we be true and faithful representatives of that image. May we faithfully adhere to your word and let your word speak truth into our lives. May we not give in to the lies of this, this world. May you remove the blinders that keep us from seeing the light of Christ and who you are and what it is that you have done. And may we walk with you, worshiping you in spirit and in truth, giving you the entirety of our life. May our life be one continuous act of worship before you as we seek to order our life according to the reality of your word and the work that you have done in us that will be brought to completion. 
the day that you come again and we will be in your presence forevermore. Being removed from the very presence of sin forevermore where we can continually delight in you. And Lord, help us not to delight in the judgment of the wicked now, knowing it's coming, but help us to grieve internally to know that now is still opportunity for them to come to the saving knowledge of who you are. Give us a love that is greater than anything that we have known. And may we care enough to confront them with the truth of who you are, that they too might be saved and experience the joy in life that we have in you. May your name receive glory. May we increase in joy. And may your glory radiate from this place, not only to the neighborhood, but to the lost of the entire world into the furthest continents that of those that are blinded by the evil one and caught in systems of, of, of satanic onslaught that they might see who you are. Lord, whether it's in India, whether it's in, in uh, Malaysia, whether it's in Sri Lanka, whether it's in Paraguay or Chile or Argentina or Colombia or Nicaragua, whether it's in Brunei, whether, Lord, it's in Madagascar or Lesotho, uh, Australia, or even the Solomon Islands, Lord, let your, gr- your glory radiate throughout the world. And may we increase in joy as your word is preached, as your spirit convicts and draws people to yourself, and that we increase in the joy of knowing that we are doing what you have made us to do. We give you ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.